0: Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about fitting games into your life. Uh, I'm your host, Reagan Kelly, and I am joined this week, as nearly always, by my great bro host and real-life twin brother, Shane. How's it going, Shane? Ah, uh, it's going pretty great. This week, we're going to be talking a little bit about a game that I have been playing a lot of lately, um, and that's Nidhogg. Uh, we'll dig into that in a minute, but um, how are things? I guess things are going pretty well. Life here in Houston is as beautiful as ever. We've had some beautiful weather here in sunny Mountain View, California, and uh, my job has been a little slow this week, which has been great because um, for the listeners, uh, my my job is a work-from-home job. And uh, when it's quiet, I find things to do around the house uh, while waiting for calls to come in and answer some emails every now and then. And this week, I've found that there was a couple of good little half hour stretches with not much going on. And I started looking for something to do. And as you may know, I'm a huge fan of retro gaming podcast, The Retronauts. They are absolutely phenomenal. And they've talked for years about a show called Game Center CX. Uh, Game Center CX is a Japanese uh, TV show uh, featuring a comedian named Arno. Uh, he's a sort of young middle-agey kind of guy uh very sort of typical affable self-effacing humor is this one of these game show type shows that i've uh that i've heard about oh thank god no is this gonna be like an american ninja warrior type thing what am i what am i setting up for not at all um game center cx uh which i'll have some links in the show notes there are some great places that you can watch this online today translated into english which is huge uh, but Game Center CX is a show about retro games. Uh, basically, r and uh, typical format of an episode is that r sits down to a challenge, a retro game challenge, where uh, he has to complete a game within a set time period. Uh, so, uh, for example, and sometimes there'll be other quirks on it, you know, he'll have to complete a game within 12 hours or 24 hours or he'll have to um, complete a game and get a particular ending or, you know, mm-hmm. some other particular challenge. And, uh, a lot of the games are games that you know people in the U.S. would be familiar with, you know, old Nintendo games, things on the Famicom. Um, but other games are ones that you would never have seen in the U.S., and you get an interesting perspective into what types of games from Japan we didn't get here. Uh, and every one of them, you know, Arno plays through it in a really kind of fun way. Uh, uh, he's very self-effacing. He makes jokes as he's going. Uh, the show isn't, you know. Twelve hours long, so you're only seeing the really interesting bits—the parts where Arno got stuck, or uh, where he Hmm. has to work really hard to overcome some kind of an obstacle—and he always sort of goes at this with a really sort of can-do spirit. Um, But he (laughs) doesn't—he's—he's not particularly skilled at games, Um, so it's kind of fun watching somebody who is more or less an average gamer uh, set a goal for himself and overcome it in every episode. Well, I guess that's what gaming's all about, setting goals for yourself and overcoming it, like, uh, trying to play one game a week. That is, I I actually felt a lot of solidarity with Arno watching some of these. And, um, actually, that's why I thought it would really be something that would appeal to our listeners, too. Uh, Retronauts had a really wonderful episode just about this, uh, this show where they talk about the history of the show and um, uh, some of the uh, their personal history with the show they've been watching it since it was airing on japan in japan and wasn't being translated into english um, you can now go out on the internet and watch this fan translated uh-huh. and subbed and and it's uh it's much easier to get into now than it ever was before is there a place on the internet that you can direct our uh, listeners to find it absolutely i'll put a link in the show notes to the site i'm watching the show on which is called gaming cx Um, Not Game Center CX, but GamingCX.com, where they've got essentially every single episode of the show. It's been running 18 seasons. If the title of the show is Game Center CX, what does the CX stand for? I have no idea. Um, And contest extreme. It very well might be something like that. But anyway, the reason that I bring it up is that I... I got into this show very recently, um, and if you're looking for a, an episode to pick from that long list of games that he's played... Yeah, it would be a good place to start. Have they uh, overlapped at all with any of your favorite games? Oh, absolutely. But the one that I watched recently that... I think would be a really cool one to check out. I just finished watching the episode on Metroid, which was really good. Um, But the one that I think I enjoyed the most was watching him play Mega Man 2, which is notoriously hard, but also notoriously short. It's been a game that uh, has been recommended to me as a short retro game uh, by a couple of people, including Dr. David Heineman when we had him on the show. Um, Mm. And it's an absolute classic. It's regarded as one of the hardest of the Mega Man games. So... uh, after watching Arno complete the game, uh, I was inspired to try it out myself, and I loaded it up in an emulator. And I've been playing through it, and it is a lot of fun. And it's also something that you really can get through pretty quickly. I've been playing it. I started playing it early this afternoon, and I've beaten four of the nine bosses now, which, you know, I feel good about. Um, You kind of have to having watched Arno play through it kind of helped because I was prepared for some of the challenges. You know, some of the things that you just sort of have to know in advance, like, well, you should probably go for the Metal Man first because his weapon is very powerful and his level is fairly easy. So if you kill him first, you get the nice uh, buzzsaw weapon that you can then use against later bosses. And I, Yeah, I, there was always a pattern to those uh, Mega Man style games that was sort of the golden path through all the bosses where each boss's weapon that you'd collect would ideally easily defeat the next level or the next boss. Yeah, and watching Arno play the game was really helpful for that reason. But also, uh, Arano isn't some kind of gaming genius. He'll sit there and get stuck and consult a, you know, old Japanese printed strategy guide from the <laughs> 1980s when he gets stuck, or he'll ask his uh, younger assistant directors. Oh, so he's not, like, on the internet, like, surfing the web while he does these challenges. He's, he's relying only on uh, vintage sources, Yes, uh, he relies awesome. on his own skills, vintage sources like strategy guides that um, he that he has brought in. And he has assistant directors who are uh, young, more intern type people who are considerably better at games than he is. And there are occasionally times where he gets so stuck that one of them will... Offer to kind of jump in for a minute and try and get him past a particularly difficult challenge and he always is very uh, Very uh, humbled by that experience. It's always really amusing. So yeah, it's great. It's such a fun show Um, And I I can't recommend it enough and I also can't recommend enough trying Mega Man 2 I'm considering maybe having us do an episode on it uh, To go into it in more depth once I've had a chance to complete it But I'm really enjoying both of those experiences and I thought I'd talk about them a little bit yeah, that sounds like uh, something I could really enjoy. I mean, I did this summer binge watch like three seasons of Bar Rescue. So <laughs> uh, my bars kind of set pretty low for reality television. And I guess I'd probably love watching somebody beat some classic video games. That would be awesome. <laughs> it's a ton of fun. What are oh, you playing yeah. lately, Shane? Yeah, so um, uh, that definitely sounds like it's, it's pretty cool. I, I have been staying up really late lately. I've had of just a variety of things in my life that either kept me awake or or made me want to play the night owl game a little bit. And one of the things that has been helping me with that is, uh, or probably a cause of that, to be honest, uh, is a game that you and I haven't really gotten to talk about, but I know that Nate and I are big fans of, and and we've we've both talked about it, Civilization. Hmm. And it's a game we've never gotten to really discuss on this show because it's the total antithesis of everything we stand for on the short game. It's an insanely long game that has no definite end point and uh, could go on forever. But uh, there's this Civilization Revolution uh, sort of sub-franchise of it that I first played on the Nintendo DS and then on the PlayStation 3. And uh, then again, on iOS, and then just recently, civilization 2 Revolu- civilization Revolution 2, the sequel to the original iOS version, is now out. And it's really awesome actually. Uh, and I think it's finally a civilization that we can talk about on this show because awesome. it's sort of like the idea behind this, the revolution civilization revolution, Is that unlike in normal civilization, which for the uh background uh listeners who might not be familiar, it's uh, a game of global conquest and typically takes like five hours to complete, uh, but not in the sense that it's a short game, it takes five hours to complete a round, and in order to experience everything the game has to offer, you'd have to play probably hundreds of rounds. The Civilization Revolution 2 is a brand new version of the fast version of Civilization, where they throw you and all of your opponents on a really tiny map, so you meet each other really early in the game, and the entire game from, like, the Stone Age to nuclear annihilation in the 30,000s is going to uh, take place in about two hours of play, and so... Or less, if you uh, if you're if you're aggressive with it. So uh, it's kind of a compressed version of Civilization, but it has, for me, all the fun of the full-on ver- version of Civilization. And that's really just been sucking me in. Um, I don't know how open-ended a game do you think it is fair to talk about on the short game? That, well, we talked about games like FTL, and I feel like that's fairly open-ended. So yeah, that's awesome. I'm gonna have to check that out this week and um one thing that i read about that i was pretty excited hearing about it but one thing that i read was that the civilization revolution 2 uh shipped without multiplayer built-in is that true sadly that is true i was really looking forward to multiplayer in this title i think turn-based online multiplayer for this would be a really nice sweet spot uh it'd be something new for the um for the Civilization genre, uh, not genre, uh, uh, franchise. Do you know if they were planning to include it? Uh, Because it seems like the sort of thing that really should have been in a, a version two. Right, I know that Civilization Revolution 1 for iOS shipped without it and then had it added in a later update. So I kind of guessed that maybe they're going that same route with the sequel, but I'm kind of surprised they decided to do that given that it's supposed to be sort of building on that original foundation. Yeah, see, that's funny. I, I played the the first one, um, and they must have added it pretty late in the uh, in, in past the release of that title because I did play it, but I don't think I ever saw the online multiplayer. Yeah, I think they did add it pretty late, and I actually never got a chance to play the online mm-hmm. multiplayer. I think I only played that game on my iPhone 3G. So we're talking yeah, about yeah. quite a quite a long time ago. Yeah, that one, by the way, that old version uh, was a straight up port of the Nintendo DS version. Which is not to say it's a bad thing, but it's not very technically advanced. the 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 graphics and the gameplay of the new version are really honed. It's got, uh, three D graphics uh, that are really, um, attractive. Uh, a little, a little less variety to some of the models uh, than I would like. Uh, but you know everything really good. It's good to hear it's working for you. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I've got to say about it. I guess. Uh, yeah. As my two thumbs up, I really do hope they add multiplayer. Cool. So, dude, I am really excited to be talking about Nidhogg. Uh, It was a game I was really looking forward to introducing you to, uh, and I was really glad that I got to in person on our cross-country road trip we threw it on that laptop and had a good time in some hotel rooms that was an absolute blast uh-huh and uh i think that then it really is a neat thing because this is a game that i feel like has to be experienced you know one-on-one versus uh situation yeah a lot like we we um recently talked about with towerfall mm-hmm. we talked we actually talked briefly about Nidhog in our towerfall episode we mentioned it by name although i'm not sure how much we actually said about it um, but Nidhog is a two-player dueling game. That's the best way that I can kind of describe it. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a, clearly it's a, a fencing simulator. Absolutely, so true to life. Um, so in Nidhogg, uh, two players, and it's exclusively two players, like your typical uh, Street Fighter type um, uh, game, it's not, uh, it's not going to allow you to do four players like Towerfall Ascension, uh, although it does have a single player mode with an AI. But uh, Nidhog exclusively, two players face each other in a pixel art arena. And the pixel art actually is a really interesting look, because it doesn't resemble the SNES sort of lineage like Towerfall does. Instead, it has a look that I think... No, it, uh, it looked a lot more like your original Atari-type games. It had a, a kind of a lower-resolution, lower-bit uh, feel at, with... Kind of characters that are a single solid color reminded me of the game Adventure. Yeah, it looks a lot like an Intellivision game. But actually oh, a good point. with uh with a kind of a different look. It looks like an Intellivision game. I'd almost kind of describe it as like seeing an Intellivision game through an Instagram filter. Like it huh. has a it has a kind of different overlay. It doesn't just look like a simple retro look. Um well yeah, it's those overlays that you overlay on the television when you play your in television games. Exactly. Uh, but the other thing that really sets it apart visually is that it doesn't have the awkward blocky animation of an Intellivision game. Instead, the animation is incredibly fluid with tons of frames. I don't know what to compare the the graphics in that way to, but every moment of the animation is full of character and motion and everything looks really dynamic. Particularly the animations of the players themselves. Another way that it's definitely unlike uh, games of that era is the kind of fluid analog control. So uh, on games that when I think about games from that era, uh, you're not thinking about something that plays with an analog stick. I just don't see how you could play this game without one. That's really surprising because I play the game exclusively with the D-pad. What? Yeah, it's much more precise. Oh, but, but no, but you can kind of easily... Uh slide from between the different positions. Okay, okay, so let's break this down. How do you play Nidhog? Right. Uh so Nidhog is each player starts with a sword, a kind of a fencing sword, and you're facing each other, and your goal, of course, is to stab the other player. And you have a very limited palette of moves that you can pull off. It's not a fighting game with a ton of combos. Um you have uh you can raise and lower your sword, so you have three levels. Yeah, the sword is It reminded me of kind of a joust in the way that, you know, if you meet the player uh, in front of you and your sword is higher, then you're you're scoring a touch on that player. The game is played with a a D-pad or joystick and two buttons. You've got a strike button that will allow you to lunge with your sword, uh, and you've got a jump button, and the jump is very high, so you get a nice lot of uh, altitude when you pull off a jump. Um, so your main moves are that you can raise and lower your sword to three different heights. You can strike with it at any of those heights. Uh, and then there's some additional moves that you can pull off by trying some extra things. Uh, you've got a jump strike, which is a kind of a dive kick. Um, uh, and then there's a, a, a roll that you can pull off while crouching. So not a whole lot of moves, but you can kind of build them into a really fluid uh, kind of back and forth. Oh, I think there is there is some moves you're missing, like the run up to your opponent and twist their head off. Mm -hmm. move. (laughs) Although it's as simple as just running up to and crouching near a prone opponent and hitting the strike button. So it's not that you're really pulling off a fancy move. It's not uh, not exactly. uh, Well, it's it's kind of uh, Mortal Kombat fatality level blood uh, with um, punch out level controls. Yeah. Um, Kind of amazing in that it it's an incredibly bloody game but also an incredibly visually simple game. Uh, your mm-hmm. blood is really just a few pixels scattered around the screen in the same color as your player character. Kind of reminds me of uh, what it's like to play games like Mortal Kombat on the uh, the SNES. You remember you could only have the no blood or like green blood. <laughs> you couldn't play Mortal Kombat with the red blood on on the SNES. What a loser feature. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, the, the animation of the player deaths being incredibly splashy is one of the things that I really loved about the game. You are constantly clashing in this game because one of the elements that I think really defines the challenge of the game and, and what kind of balances out an incredibly fast-paced and easy-to-screw-up control scheme, you know, it's, it's kind of you're running and jumping and diving and stabbing, uh, and one touch, and you explode in a fountain of gore. uh, Neon, crazy, uh, trippy-looking gore. And I think the thing that really makes it feel like you're able to kind of continue is not like a normal fighting game where it's like, round one, fight, two, fight. Instead, as soon as you die, you reappear in front of your opponent. And so it's like a crazy tug-of-war where you are trying to get to the far end and they're trying to push you back or like a football game where people are pushing each other forward or back across uh, a level. The level design was fabulous. Mm -hmm. So uh, you don't win this game by killing your opponent. In fact, it does keep score of how many times you kill your opponent, but it's completely irrelevant to the ending of the game. It's extremely satisfying though. Uh, The player who wins the game is the player who gets all the way to their opponent's side of the very long level. Uh, and you're only allowed to proceed after killing your opponent. So if you and I are, uh, are at that starting point and I kill you, I get a great big arrow pointing the direction that I want to go that says, go. And then I begin running in that direction. And after a very short time, usually only a few steps, uh, you, my opponent, will respawn in front of me, and I have to kill you again to proceed past you, or dodge, or roll past you, or jump over you, or find some other way past you. Um, and every time I go a few more steps, my opponent respawns again in front of me. It's if your opponent gets past you, and the levels are not extremely multi-layered, but they can be, and uh, you can you can easily get over your opponent or around your opponent. And at that point, it's basically better just to stand still and let your opponent run onto the next screen so that you can respawn in front of them. Um, One of the biggest pitfalls I ran into in this game was trying to chase you down (laughs) after you had jumped over my head. And you can lose a huge amount of ground that way. uh, are we going to have a spoiler break before you reveal what happens at the end of this game? I don't think so. Uh, it is in the trailer. So that's usually a good guideline for me. If it's in the trailer, I don't think yeah, it's, it's a spoiler. It's also in the title. <laughs> it is. So your winning condition for Nidhogg is that if you do manage to get past your opponent or kill your opponent numerous times and get to the entire opposite side of the level, the round ends when you get to the final screen and leap into the mouth of the giant evil god Nidhog, Nidhog is a gigantic pink worm with crazy eyes. Yes, uh, I, I in Wikipedia preparing for this episode discovered that Nidhogg is in fact a uh, mythological creature from Norse mythology uh, who, I'm, who we're all probably pronouncing wrong because we can't speak fight. Yeah, bummer. Yeah, some kind of crazy uh, snake monster that wrapped itself around Yggdrasil, the Tree of Life, blah, blah, blah. etc. etc. We'll put a link in the show notes. Oh, yeah. You're going to need that. So this game, we've kind of described the entire game. There are four levels, so it's not an enormous amount of content in this game. Nope, you've got it access is, to all of those levels right away. Yeah, it is all played in this two-player versus uh, I didn't mode. unlock anything. There are, I think, some... Are there some unlockables? No, there's not some unlockables, but there are some, uh, like, variation modes that I didn't explore too much. Um, uh, Maybe we'll leave that as an exercise to the listener, but... There's a tournament mode uh, for if you're playing in a large group. Super important because this game really is designed for playing in person against others. Uh, It's really... In fact, actually, uh, we'll talk about the history of the game and its developer a little bit in a minute. But one of his stated goals for the game was to make a game that could be taken seriously in tournament play at uh, places like Evo and other uh, esports type tournaments. And actually, I think he's really succeeded in that goal, but we'll come back to talking about that in a minute. Uh, But the tournament mode is vital for that. Uh, It has an online play mode. Um, I haven't heard amazing things about it because it's a, such a fast paced game that latency would be a real trouble. Um, but it is a game that you can play online against real people, or you can play it against the computer. There's a pretty decent AI. That's really got some pretty good moves. It plays very realistically. Mm -hmm. Um, you can get two controllers and play it against yourself. If you kind of use your feet, you can give that a try if you like. I mean, I'm not saying I've done it. Okay, but it's an awesome uh, it's an awesome two player game. So if you have a choice, this is a game to play uh, mano a mano against somebody and you will be hurling controllers at each other, much in the way that Towerfall Uh is a perfect experience for four players all on a couch. This is a perfect experience for two. And in some ways, I think if you've only got two players, this may be a better game to play than Towerfall. I like Towerfall a lot with two players, but I love this game, two players. Yeah, it it really is. um, I guess my uh my, my questions about the game do you think it's worth the fifteen dollar price tag because i feel so spoiled asking that question but i play a lot of games that are in that price range and this game has very little content i will tell you that yes i completely do think it's worth that fifteen dollar price tag and the main reason is that this is a game that i have pulled out at a moment's notice numerous times um and it's a great game to, you know, if you got somebody who's interested in playing video games with you uh, and you just want to play a two-player versus game, this is a game that I pull out every single time that comes up. I've been going to a lot of game meetups recently. Um, for those listeners who may actually be in the San Francisco Bay Area, I, I'm, uh, I've been recently going to a lot of meetups with a, a group called the uh, South Bay Button Mashers. Uh, great fun guys, and uh, this game is a game that gets played at almost every single meetup of that alongside games like tower fall and star wall just the tip because they are perfect short quick easy to pick up games for a group for multiplayer on a couch Um, and it's also great because i can just throw my laptop in my bag grab a couple of game pads of almost any kind and we've got a game going super easy to pick up and play that's awesome i envy you the um kind of routine experience to play Towerfall against people who like it. (laughs) Well, look for a meetup like that. There's actually a lot of those. I should. The game has a really neat history. Um, It's... uh, and actually kind of a surprisingly long history for a game like this. Uh, Nidhogg actually debuted under a different title several years ago. And actually, when I read about this, I realized that I'd been hearing about this game for years longer than I thought I had. Uh, Nidhogg debuted at No Quarter, which is uh, the NYU Game Center- The order of No Quarter? (laughs) No, it is the exhibition of No Quarter. No Quarter is the name of a arcade-style games exhibition that NYU puts on once a year, Um, and it debuted in 2010, so four years ago. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes about this, but it debuted under the name Raging Hadron, uh, and it got some really amazing positive press at the time, Uh, but it was in a very different form then. This was one of those games that, if you were following indie gaming news, uh, you You kind of heard about this as a rumbling because it came up at this show and then was exhibited at a variety of different other uh, game conventions and events. Uh, And every time that it showed up, uh, reporters who attended these things would write about it with these effusive praises for the game because it was this thing that was kind of thought of as this thing that you'd never see outside of these tiny uh, game exhibition Mm -hmm. events. I didn't know anything about this secret history of nidhogg what was it stylistically different when it was called raging hadron i think visually it was very similar but it had a different move set and i think it lacked the giant worm Hmm, well that that was a good addition yeah the the move set's really been tweaked a lot um there's some great interviews with the developer uh that you can find online. Uh, was it always it, a fencing game? It was always a fencing game. And it always was involving, it was always a two player game with this kind of back and forth, constant respawning kind of thing. Um, but it had a very much evolving set of moves. There were times where he added a lot of new moves and a lot of more complexity. And there were other times where he shaved it down. Uh, and this game was kind of constantly in beta for four years. Um, wow. the appearances were really few between that 2010. Uh, initial debut and uh, its more recent sort of debut at Evo, the uh, fighting games tournament or eSports tournament in 2013. Uh, But it resurfaced at that point in a much more current form. Um, And uh, at Evo, it was played in a tournament style and it really kind of gained a reputation as a game that could be played as an eSport. it was, I won a bunch of awards there too. And uh, finally, it was released on Steam for Windows in January of 2014. So we're talking about. 2010 to 2014, this game was being workshopped, refined, and brought to uh, gaming exhibitions and conventions and other things like that. Uh, And I think you really see where all that time went. This is a game that was meant to be perfect for in-person multiplayer, and the only way that the developer got that quite this good was to have tons of people play it in person uh, and have him watch those people play it so that he could refine the game again and again came out right around yeah. the same time as Towerfall, even though it's actually been in development for much longer. It is an incredibly polished game, and I think the, the way that that stands out to me the most is what you mentioned right at the top, which is the incredible smoothness of the animation, which brings me back to, I just can't believe that you're playing this game with a D-pad and not an analog stick. Oh, it's so much better, bro. You've just, like, th- I don't even think that the game registers more than four directions. But the, the the raising and lowering of the sword uh, is so much more fluid when you're using the analog stick. It feels like there are so many. It's not like the typical eight way D pad is going to cover all of those positions, is it? Well, it doesn't really matter which direction you raise your sword if you've got it ten degrees to the right or left. Uh, it's if it's above your head and then you hit that strike button, you throw the sword. Which actually, I don't know if we really mentioned the throwing the sword when we talked about the different moves. And that's no, so that's key one to of this the, game. Uh, yeah, one of the most fun little moves. It leaves you without a sword and now you're vulnerable. Um yeah, if you uh, if you hold the up button or uh, up on your joystick, then your character holds his sword above his head, which is really interesting in that it gives the opponent kind of a key so that you can they can see what you're about to do. And that's really important. That's something that uh, in some of the interviews that I read, he didn't add until fairly late. Um And it was it's a very important aspect because throwing your sword is something that players do constantly in this game. You can raise the sword above your head and then hit strike to throw the sword forward. And if you hit your opponent with it, then it's an instant kill. But they can swipe the sword out of the air or they can jump over it or otherwise avoid it. And then you're left without a sword. It's not hard to dodge. Now you are effed. Yeah, but not really, because actually the uh, the melee in this game is actually pretty solid. If you can pull off a roll and get behind somebody, uh, you can probably take them out anyway. Or you can pick up a sword that's been dropped on the ground. And after a good number of respawns, sometimes the ground is littered with swords. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun to throw your sword, roll, grab another sword and strike from a different direction. It really you can pull this stuff off really quickly. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah, those are some of the most satisfying moments in the game, where uh, the the ground is literally nothing but like neon blood and little uh, two <laughs> two pixel swords. Those things it's uh, it's like they're like they're fighting with tiny toothpicks, mm-hmm. and that's the kind of polish that this game has that I think does make it a game that you can really consider as. Uh, an esports title but unlike most of the games that i see played in esports type environments like um starcraft or some of the fighting games with Uh, more impenetrable movesets like the advanced things like uh uh, street fighter and other things like that Mm -hmm. um this is a game with a very simple moveset that is very easy to pick up and also if you're watching this everything that the players are doing is totally apparent there's no sort of combo system or anything like that. Yeah, no, I understand. There's nothing impenetrable about this. You can look at this game and know what is happening in an instant. It's pure reflexes, which is uh, what makes it both incredibly fun and incredibly hard against the right opponent. Mm -hmm. And I think because of all that polish, it's been winning a lot of awards. This won uh, a game design award at IndieCade 2013. Um, It won... Several awards at uh, GDC in 2011, including um, the Grand Prize and uh, an Excellence in Design Award. Uh, it's got a couple of others. If you go to their website, you'll see a, just a gigantic banner of awards that this game has won, and I think it deserves every one. Yeah, it's uh, definitely if you're looking at this game uh, and you're considering buying it, but you don't know if you really want to play. Pay 15 bucks. For a game with uh, four levels and one character, it's really not like those other games that you've played. It really is incredibly unique. Uh, I think if you have the ability, especially like you're describing, Reagan, to load it up on a laptop, and I think it'll probably run on just about anything, and carry a controller to um, to play it in person with a friend, it's going to be like those, like any of the games that you pull out on a regular basis. Uh, it's it's a game that for me is about really getting together and playing with good friends, uh, something that is incredibly competitive and is really good. At, even those friends that aren't super into competitive games that would not, maybe not sit down and play Street Fighter with you, it's so competitive and so accessible that it's basically a guaranteed fight with your best friend. And if that's <laughs> worth 15 bucks to you, then uh, it'll be $15 well spent. I don't even know why we're we're debating that because I think this game is cheap at twice the price. This is a game that I think you'll go back to again and again and again and again and again. I've logged many hours in this game, and this is a game where each individual round takes minutes. So yeah, I think it's completely a game that you should pick up. Uh, Fortunately, uh, it's becoming easier and easier to pick up. Uh, It came out on Steam for windows in january but at some point between then and now i didn't notice it happen but it also released a mac version so you can play this on a mac now and uh, it will run like shane said on practically anything so load this up on your macbook air and you're good to go uh, but this has a real console feel and that's why i'm really glad that apparently they've just recently announced that this game is coming to the ps4 we don't have an exact release date yet uh but it probably won't be that long. This doesn't look like that big of a porting effort. It's uh, it's a reasonably simple game, and uh, I think it should be easy to port that, you know, like I know anything about that. Reagan, is it bad that I'm considering getting a PS4 just for Towerfall and Nidhogg on my TV in the living room? I actually think this is a huge part of Sony's uh, strategy. They've been really smart about this. Uh, and we talked about uh, Said Ahmed a little while ago. He's the, the sort of indie developer um, emissary at Sony. And I think he's doing an amazing job at positioning Sony's consoles, first the Vita and now the PS4, as the place to be for indie developers on uh, home and portable consoles. Um, and what I think that's really done for them is that maybe the PS4 doesn't have a huge library of big system selling games right now, but it has a already pretty sizable and growing library of these really addictive, cool, and really inexpensive uh, indie games that you can download for a few bucks or maybe even get for free as a part of the PlayStation Plus program as they did yeah. with uh, Towerfall and with a whole bunch of other cool stuff. Um And I know we talked about um, Transistor. That's another great example. They've just done an amazing job of attracting these really compelling indie games to their platform, and it kind of rounds out those holes in their catalog and makes a PS4 feel like a really vibrant thing, even when it's brand new and there's just not that huge of a catalog of games for it yet. So I think they're being really smart there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I don't think it's crazy at all to think think maybe I should buy a PS4 just to play Tower Fall in the living room because that's why they put it there Ah, you are right uh but in the meanwhile i think it's probably cheaper for me to keep connecting my computer to the television yep that's what i'll probably keep doing for a while (laughs) now too but uh well any final thoughts on this game because i i guess i've said all i've said my piece you should probably go buy it um everybody out there if you've got a ps4 uh lucky you here's what you do buy this game on steam download it onto your laptop Get two game pads of almost any kind that will plug in over USB or connect wirelessly with your computer. Take this to a friend's house, open two beers, and you're going to have a fantastic time. This game is 15 bucks on Steam or also available on the Humble Store if you want to give a portion of your... uh Uh, of your money to charity. I always like to do that when possible because the Humble Store usually gives you a Steam key in addition to a DRM-free download. I don't remember if this game includes a DRM-free game uh, copy, but uh, good place to buy the game, and I'll have a link in the show notes for that. Coming soon to the PS4 if you have one of those, so if you prefer that, maybe hold out until that comes out. Um, But definitely pick this game up if you enjoy multiplayer games of any kind. I think it's probably the most fun you can have with two people, two game pads, one couch uh, that's come out of, uh, out of video gaming in the last four years. Stabby, stabby, stab, stab, stab. All right. Well, we'll catch you again next week. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Shane, for this episode of the short game. Any closing thoughts? Um, uh, only that I played this with my wife who was a former fencing coach and uh, she beat me over and over again. Unsurprising. Uh, but uh, I I, I, uh, I was consoled by the memory of having beaten you over and over and over again on our trip. We won't speak of that. Alright. Thanks to Shane and uh, join us next week for another episode of The Short Game. This is the freaking short game. The short tea short game t-shirt short, short, short game what's ha- what what's happening That's the third short game theme song I wrote it for you what's what's happening awesome you didn't like my song okay he was's was, was, was all right it was the Rugrats theme song oh okay <laughs> that makes sense